Well, good morning again. We are so glad you guys... It doesn't recognize my face. That's not good. All right, we're so glad you guys are with us. Apparently, I got uglier over the week. All right, so a couple of announcements before we get started. If you're new, we're so glad you guys are with us today. Uh, it is fall. It feels like fall. It's a great time of year. Uh, and so Halloween is next week. And so I uh, we'll hope you guys are excited as we get into this season. And Christmas is right around the corner. And so for us, Christmas means Grinchmas. And so I know there's a planning meeting uh, coming up some point in time. Uh, I should probably know that date and time, but I don't. So you should download the Journey app so you can look it up. And then you can just find out. And don't rely on me because they tell me stuff last. And so, uh, but it is coming up. And so uh, we're super excited about that. Download the app. It's the best way to stay connected. Listen to sermons. Listen to music, the best way to give. Uh, it's, you also listen to our new podcast, Divinely Uninspired. We dropped a new episode out this week, and we had a lot of fun with that. Uh, and so we hope you guys are enjoying that. If you have anything you ever want us to discuss, if you've listened, what you realize is we discuss a lot of really weird stuff. And uh, so if there's anything you want us to discuss that maybe we wouldn't talk about on a Sunday morning, please feel free to email us, and we will try our best to get around to it. Now, we are wrapping up this series today, uh, Greater Things. We've been in it for a while, and we're going to jump into a new series uh, starting next week. But um, to end this series, what I wanted to do was have a conversation um, with you guys and also myself and everybody watching online about this idea of greater things. And we introduced this verse a few weeks ago, and I told you to me this is one of the most fascinating verses uh, in the Bible. And so it comes out of the book of John. Uh, John is one of Jesus' early followers, and he writes a few books. Uh, John is one of them, obviously, and then first and second, uh, John, he writes these letters, and then also he writes the book of Revelation. And so he's got a lot to say. Um, but in this, he, he's talking, and there's a guy that asks a question early on. His name's Philip. So remember that name because we're going to come back to it. Okay, so Philip says this in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. So Jesus just told his disciples he's about to leave them. Uh, they're a little bit freaked out. They're a little bit panicked because to them, as long as Jesus is here, everything is good. If Jesus leaves, everything goes bad, right? And so they've seen Jesus do a lot of amazing things. Uh, they, Jesus obviously the center of kind of what they're doing, this movement they're starting. And so for Jesus to leave is very scary to them. And then Jesus says this in verse 9, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to understand God, all you have to do is look at me. Okay, you just look at me and look at who I am, look at what I say, look at what I've taught, look at what I've done, and then you're going to see what God is like. And he says, you know, seen the Father has seen me. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the work themselves. So even if you don't want to believe the words, look at all of the things I've done. I mean, at this point, Jesus has done a lot of things. He's blown a lot of people's minds. I mean, a lot of the, the movement of Jesus starts behind the miracles that he does and raising people from the dead and healing people. I mean, we talked a few weeks ago. I mean, it's this idea that, that, I mean, what if we could do that? Like, what if I could just do a miracle right now, right? Do you know how big our church would be if I could just, like, do some of these things? And so that's kind of this, the system. And then here's the line that Jesus says that I think for all of us in this room or watching that say we're a follower of Jesus, we have to pay attention to what he says. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have done and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now, think about this verse. 
Think about all of the things that Jesus has done. The miraculous, the divine, the unexplainable. And what Jesus says to these guys, but then also kind of superseding that to us, is that if we kind of believe in who he is, then not only can we do the things that he's done, but we will actually do greater things. Which to me is a bit of a head scratcher when I think about it. Because it's this idea of when we think about all that Jesus accomplished And Jesus is encouraging his followers at the time, but also encouraging us that through our faith that we can do even greater things. Now, if you study much church history, what you'll realize is that these weren't empty words, that these guys went on to do even greater things. I mean, and when Jesus dies, his movement is a small movement. It's not very big. And yet now we have this idea that so much of our understanding of the world is based on what comes out of what Jesus taught. We have the idea simply in in this, that it even survived the first century. The idea that there's a bunch of white, okay, white people right here, not Jewish, most of us, okay, very few of us, if any, okay, right here in Shepherdsville, Kentucky, 2,000 years after the event. And not just us, people all over the world are gathered on this morning to celebrate and worship Jesus, a guy that never traveled more than 50 miles out of our region, a guy that when he died, there was no one there, and yet here we are. It's all because of what these guys were able to do. Now, the temptation is this. When we hear that and we think, okay, these guys did do amazing things, and we hear stories from the church. I mean, there's been several church fathers throughout history, and even some people today that are still doing these amazing things. But the temptation is when we think about these guys is to say, well, that was then, right? That was then. These were the disciples. Of course, they could do those things back then. We often think of their world very differently than ours, but the reality is, is it wasn't that different. We have to understand that everything that we see in the Bible comes kind of from two kind of narratives. The first narrative is it's all taking place within the Roman Empire, everything we see in the New Testament. The second thing is, is that we cannot separate a lot of the ideas that we have from the Jewish world that Jesus grew up into. Now, let me explain this, okay? Um, We've talked about this before. I am obsessed with the Roman Empire. I I wrote my dissertation when I was in college on the Roman Empire and the impact of them um, in the world at that time. And and so, uh, but the, the Roman Empire is impressive. They ruled the world for a long period of time. They weren't like America where we're like a superpower and we kind of keep everybody in check, okay, with our weapons and our might and our wealth. These guys ruled the world. From from modern day England all the way to India, which was most of the known world, they ruled the world. And the Roman Empire was ruled by a succession of emperors called the Caesars. Okay, they started with a council and then it eventually went to the Caesars. Uh, the first one is Julius Caesar. You guys have probably heard of that guy. All right, he makes a good drink at the mall and also a great salad. And when he died, um, the world kind of went sad. Uh, but then he had a son. His son's name was Augustus. Now, Augustus is the first one to say that his father was divine, Julius, that he was like a god, which makes Augustine, okay, if your dad's a god, that makes you what? The son of God. This is about the same time that Jesus comes onto the picture. In fact, there's there's a legend that there's this this star that was in the sky, this bright star, the brightest of the stars, right? Sound familiar? And they believed that star was there to represent Caesar and all that he had accomplished. 
There was this other idea that, that, that basically the, the Caesars came and their, their goal was to bring peace and prosperity to the world. In fact, one of the early sta- slogans that was said in the Roman Empire is this, there is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved other than that of Caesar. Sound familiar? Because we say that. There's no other name under heaven by which people can be saved other than the name of Jesus. Caesar inaugurated a 12-day celebration of his birth called the Advent of Caesar. Sound familiar? On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me 12 days in Advent. Think about this, okay? So all of this is going on at the same time. In fact, there was a popular saying on the streets that you would often greet people with where you would go to someone in the Roman Empire and you would say, Caesar is Lord, do you believe So imagine being a follower of Jesus during this time. And there's all these implications of what Caesar's doing and all of this. And these Christians, they believed that through Jesus and what he had done, it had implications for everything. Their tradition had taught them that the world is actually broken and desperate and need of repair. And that at some point, God was coming to put it all back together to the way it was supposed to be. For them, this future restoration had nothing to do with leaving the world, but being a part of the very world they found themselves in. It was about the restoration, the renewing, and the reclaiming of the world they found themselves in, even during that time, even during the time of Rome. Now think about this. You have two groups of people who both believe that what they're doing and who their leader is is accomplishing what needs to happen to make the world the way it's supposed to be. So this puts the early Christian movement in direct opposition with Rome and the Caesars and their power. And the question started to form. Do you believe that the world is made better through power and armies and wealth of Rome or through what Jesus is calling these people to, something different? There was one particular Caesar named Domitian, and I love Domitian. I don't love him as a person because he was a really terrible person, but but I love understanding him and studying him. And I did a sermon a few years ago about Domitian, if you guys remember that, over at Paracat Springs. And some people were like, we had no idea what you were talking about. Well, you should. It's fascinating. And so Domitian, he's one of these Caesars. But what's interesting about Domitian is Domitian is the first Caesar to recognize that the movement of Jesus is in direct opposition to the movement of Rome. And he does some pretty gnarly stuff to these people early on. And so there's all of this persecution, there's all of this prob- problems that are rising up within the church. There's a lot of people in the church saying, you know, we signed up for this thing because we thought Jesus was awesome and we're going to do all these amazing things. But all of a sudden it feels like the whole world is coming down on us and it's not the way that we thought it was going to be. Anybody ever felt like that? Now, There was a group of guys that no matter what happened, they continued to insist that what Jesus called them to and that what Jesus was able to do through them was greater than anything that the Caesars could do. It was greater than the Roman Empire. Now, to understand what happened next in human history for these young Jewish men and women, you have to understand their culture a little bit more. You have to understand the world at that time. Now, we often believe the temptation is to say, first of all, that what happened during that first century happened because that was back then. The other temptation is to say, well, of course those guys changed the world because they were different than me and you. They were special. And sure, they're special, just like everybody is special. But it's important to understand, again, that we're in a Roman world and a Jewish world. So to understand the call of these guys, it's important to understand the Jewish world. 
Now, Jesus grew up in a region called Galilee, and the Jewish people in Galilee believed that God had spoken to Moses a long time ago and that they had given him these teachings, these ideas. Okay, it's the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, it's called the Pentateuch or the Torah. Ever heard those terms before? Okay, so fascinating terms, very important. Torah means teaching or understandings. And the Torah was the center, the foundation of their lives, their faith, and their education system. So here's what gets fascinating. So around the time of six years old, most Jewish boys and girls were sent off to school to learn the Torah. And the Torah was often taught by a rabbi at the local synagogue. Now, in this first level, it was called Bates Affair. Bates Affair. And so what did happen is they would actually start to memorize the entire Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Memorized. All right? Anybody want to take that challenge on? Right? Okay? They would memorize it. Now, if you could do this, about 10 years old, you would leave this uh, teaching and you would move on to a different teaching, a different teaching called Bates Affair. Now, in Bates Affair, if you were good enough to have memorized that, you would start to learn under a specific um, uh, rabbi, and you would start to kind of look out, and you would start to learn the rest of what the Old Testament had to say. By 10 years old, these kids had to have almost all of this memorized. If they didn't, well, they weren't good enough. And so they'd leave the school, and they would go, and they would learn their family trade. See, in their culture, whatever your family did, that more than likely is what you were going to be able to do. And one of the only ways that Jewish boys and girls could make it out of that system, that repetitive system of whatever your dad did, you're going to do, whatever your mom did, you're going to do, was through this system. So if they were good enough and smart enough and the best of the best, and if the rabbi believed that they were good enough to do this, they would move on to Beit Talmud. Around 14 or 15 years old, most of these kids, they would, they would be out of the system at this point. They weren't smart enough. They weren't good enough. They weren't the best of the best of the best. And so they would learn their family trade. But there were always a few. They were the best of the best. And at this point, they were given the opportunity to go and to find a rabbi. A rabbi is a teacher, a leader. And many people refer to Jesus as one of the great rabbis, and there were so many of them, but Jesus is often referred to as this great teacher, this great rabbi. And so what would happen is these, these kids would go to these rabbis, and they would ask the rabbi if they could follow them. Now, this wasn't just like you're following them in the way of you just want to know what the teacher knows. No, this was a different idea. This was an idea of discipleship. This was an idea of you didn't just want to know what the rabbi knew. You wanted to be the rabbi. Everything he did, you wanted to do. Everywhere he went, you wanted to go. And rabbis, they all taught a little bit differently. In fact, one of the things is their, their whole different thing was how they interpreted the Torah. How do you interpret what God is actually saying to man? And so they'd take a man and they would debate it and they'd talk about it. And different rabbis had different ideas of what the world could look like and what God was trying to say. What they would refer to that is they would say, well, that was the rabbi's yoke. And could you follow the yoke of the rabbi? Could you do what the rabbi could do? Could you take the yoke that he's teaching about how God's interacting with the world, and could you take that out? And could you make that your own? Could you be a part of the system that he's starting? Now, most kids didn't make it through this program because they weren't the best of the best of the best. And so eventually, a rabbi would sit down with this kid, and he would say, you know, you're a good kid, and you've tried really hard, and you've done really good. But to be honest with you, you just don't have what it takes to follow me. 
But every once in a while, a rabbi would look at a kid and he'd say, you know what? I think you're good enough. I think you can follow me. You can be my disciple. But only if you're the best of the best of the best. What's fascinating about the story of Jesus and these early guys, these early men and women who led this movement was when Jesus calls them, what are they all doing? They're all working for their families. Which means at some point, someone had told them they weren't the best of the best of the best. Now, we only have two evidences in history of rabbis doing this. The first is a guy named Hillel. Hillel lived about 50 years before Jesus. And Hillel's belief was that God can make a disciple out of anybody. And Jesus kind of follows in this vein. And Jesus is one of the two rabbis that we can find who actually calls guys to follow him who weren't the best of the best of the best. And not only did he call these guys, but he said things like, I chose you. You didn't choose me, I chose you. And then he tells them things that are really crazy, like you, you can do not only what I can do, but you will do greater things. Now, the movement of Jesus and his earlier followers put the world on notice because it raised some serious questions. These guys that Jesus had chosen to follow him, they, they, they did a movement, they started a movement, this way of Jesus, this yoke, of Jesus, and it raised some really good questions. Who do you believe makes the world a better place? Caesar, who thinks that a new world is made better through his brute military and political power by forcing people to do what he says? Or Jesus, who invites you to make a new and better world through things like compassion and generosity? Caesar, who killed Jesus on an execution state, or God who raised Jesus from the dead? Whose world do you think is better? Who do you think is Lord? Jesus or Caesar? The better question was whose kingdom is more compelling? The kingdom of Caesar or the kingdom of Jesus? See, to them, the gospel was an invitation to a whole new way of life. And to live that life in this world that they lived in currently. And they had this myth, mystical understanding of what they were doing with their lives and the impact it was making on the world. They believed so intently on what Jesus had called them to that they weren't, they weren't good enough just to say that they were the disciples of Jesus. They actually said things like they were the body of Christ. And they believed in their communities they could make a difference. And so they went into these communities with love and compassion and generosity and with peace. One of the later teachings, Paul will give this, this, this great letter and he'll say, in fact, the way if you want to know if you're following the way of Jesus, he said, well, there's these fruits, it's the, pro, the produce, the, the product of it. He says, you go into the world around you and you live a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And so these early followers who weren't the best of the best, but who believed that Jesus had called them to do something greater, they go into these communities and they invite people to eat with them and to celebrate with them and to serve with them and to suffer with them. And they changed the world. And then as they saw the hungry fed and the lonely loved and the poor honored, they'd ask the people in the community, well, what do you think? What system is better? 
They also believed that when they were doing these things, it wasn't like they were just doing it on Jesus' behalf. They believed that Jesus was right there with them in the midst of it. They believed the church was a living, breathing display of a whole new world that God was bringing together right here and right now. So back to Philip. He wasn't the best. He was one of these guys that Jesus looked at, and we believe that when Philip was called, he was a teenager. Think about your teenager real quick, okay, if you have one. Jesus looks at him, and he says, you can do what I can do. And Philip believed it. The story tells us that Philip is this, from this little, tiny, insignificant town, um, this fishing village called Bethsaida. It's the most podunk town you can possibly think of. You know what a podunk town is? Anybody from a podunk town? Okay, that's where he's from. Not very many people, not much going on. So imagine being this kid from this little fishing village, and Jesus calls you and invites you to follow him, to be his disciple. He'll be your rabbi. And then all that Philip saw Jesus do, and that Jesus said to him, you can do even greater things. Now, tradition has us that later Philip will end up in a Greek city called Heropolis. Now, Heropolis is a massive Greek city in Asia Minor. It's what we refer to today as Turkey, okay? Heropolis was a big city. It was a Roman garrison. It, it, it's, it was kind of this bridge between the east and the west. It was also a center for Roman soldiers, and there were all kinds of hot and cold baths throughout the city. And if you know what that is, they didn't have running water back then. So they'd have these big like, kind of pools set up. And there were hot and cold ones. And, and because there were soldiers there, there was a massive cemetery right outside the city for Roman soldiers who'd been, who'd been killed in battle. And so it was this great area for people to go and travel to and see all of these things. The other thing that was famous about Heropolis was there was a massive gambling center there. Because all these soldiers would come in with their earnings from battle and from war. And they'd want to do stuff. It was also a city filled with prostitution. And basically every other kind of trouble you could get into. In fact, many scholars say it was the Las Vegas of its day. Not that I'm judging you if you've been to Las Vegas. But church tradition has it that Philip went to Heropolis. And and you get to Heropolis, there's this gate you had to pass through. It was called the Domitian Gate. Because during this time, Domitian is the emperor. and, And Domitian, the guy we talked about earlier, he also believed that he was a god. Now, Heropolis was also a major trading city, and it connected, as I said, the east to the west. So not only is it this Roman garrison, so there's all these people there, but it's also a trade destination because you have all these spices and you have all this incense that's coming in from the east that they're trying to take into the west. And so it was this major trading thing. And tradition tells us that in order to do business in the city of Heropolis, Domitian put this decree out there that you had to acknowledge Caesar as God. And then if you acknowledge Caesar as God, then you could buy and sell within Heropolis and you could take your your trades that you brought from the east and you could go through the gate and go back to where you were from. But in order to know that somebody had claimed that Domitian was God and that claimed that the Caesar was like a God, they had to put um, a mark on you. And so they would say that they would stain their hands. In order to do business in this village, in this city, and in this region, you had to have a mark on your hand. Now, Domitian was infamous for hunting down Christians and Jews. And so early Christians and Jews referred to the emperor Domitian as the beast. And so to buy and sell here, you might often have to have the mark of the beast on you. 
By the way, about the same time, there was a guy named John who wrote a letter to the church to encourage them. It's a famous letter. Many of you have carried this letter and you didn't even realize it. It was the letter of Revelation, right? We'll get to that one someday. But here's the thing. So in order to go into this town, you had to walk under this Domitian gate, and you also had to have this mark, okay, in order to do business there, acknowledging that you were acknowledging Domitian as God and his domain was supreme. And if you refused to walk through the gate, Okay? They would say that they would crucify people outside the gate to show them what happens to people who defy Domitian. Now, Philip, he goes there. And church tradition tells us that he walks up to the gate in Heropolis. And he walks before it. And he looks at it. And he walks to the side of it and he looks at it. And then he walks around it. He refuses to go through it. And he was there for six years, so he did this a lot. He went there to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, not to acknowledge Domitian. Now, this infuriated the Romans, particularly the Domitian followers. Tradition says that his whole family was with Philip when he went and he did this, and they were terrified. Because they understood what it meant to defy the empire and the emperor. Tertius also tells us that Philip looked to his wife and his children and said, It's okay. Don't worry. Because I saw my rabbis feed 5,000. And I saw him raise from the tomb. For six years, he goes to and from this city, walking around the gate. He goes in and he turns this place upside down. The message of Jesus spread in Heropolis to the point that it became a thriving center for the church. Sin City of its day, and here's Philip from Podunkville, walking into Heropolis. Churchurchin also tells us that Philip was crucified right outside that very gate. Not just him, but also his wife and his kids. But what's fascinating about this story is this. People to this day go to the ruins of Heropolis. But do you know why they go to the ruins of Heropolis? It's not to see the Domitian Gate. It's to see the tomb of Philip. See, no matter what the Roman Empire or Domitian or the people in Heropolis did, the damage had been done. Greater things were happening. And this guy from this tiny fishing village radically affected the entire spiritual destiny of a region, the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire, because he believed he could be like his rabbi. Now, Jesus later talking to his disciple John will say, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It's this idea that Jesus has chosen us to do great things. And so the question comes from the story of Philip, and it's just one of many stories that I can tell you is, what is your 
Hierapolis. What is the thing that you see before you that God is calling you to do greater things for? So how about this? I mean, I realize that can be overwhelming to think about walking up to an entire city and you're going to change the course of the fate of an entire city. I realize that's not what all of us signed up for. But here's a simpler question. Um, If we've been called, if we've been chosen, if we're the body of Christ, well, then what are we doing? What are the greater things that we're doing? What are the things that we are offering our community? What are the things that we're offering our neighbors? What are the things that we're offering our world? See, the followers of the way of Jesus, these disciples of this great teacher, this great rabbi, they believe that they can make the world a better place. So the question for us is, what are we doing to make the world a better place? See, here's what I know about this room and the next room that's going to follow this room and people that come here. See, here's what I know about you guys. There is so much talent and ability and resources and connections and opportunity in this room right now. I always say to people, it's not that we don't have opportunity. I mean, when you think about it, like there is opportunity every single day for every single one of us to make the world a better place. There's opportunity every single day, every single one of us to believe that we can be like our rabbi Jesus and to offer grace and peace and hope to someone that's in a desperate situation. It's always there. It's not the question of opportunity. The question is, are we available to it? Do we believe that we can be like Jesus or do we avoid those situations? Do we believe that we can be the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus? Here's a good question for you. Um, Maybe we should stop praying for people to get food when we have more than enough food ourselves, right? Well, God, feed those people. Well, maybe we have the food that they need. Or how about this? Have you ever thought about this? What if you are the answer to someone's prayer? You ever think about that? Like someone going through a really hard time and they just need somebody to be there, their presence and their actions and their words. Like, think about that. What if you actually are the answer to someone's prayer? So what can we do? What are the greater things that we've been called to? So we're going to do something that's a little bit awkward, and then we're going to get out of here. So it's almost over. So just do it, and then we'll be done. If you don't do it, I'm going to talk for 20 more minutes. So here's the thing. I want everybody to get out your phone, your smartphone. Everybody's got a smartphone. It's okay. Get out your dumb phone if you don't have a smartphone, okay? Or just remember if you don't want to do this. Now, here's why this is important. All right, here's the thing. We use these things for everything, right? Now, there's a thing on most smartphones called a reminder. You guys know what a reminder is or a note? So here's what I want you to do. It's going to be real simple. It's just between you and God. I'm not going to check anybody's phones. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to type in one thing. One thing you can do this week or maybe today to be like Jesus. A reminder that we've been called to greater things, that we've been called to do the things that even Jesus did. And I want you to type in your phone, you do whatever it is that you feel comfortable with, and I want you to set a reminder to do it. And then here's the follow-up. What if we just kept doing that? Not because I guilted you into doing it. Or not because you're checking your email pretending like you're doing it right now. (laughs) But what if you actually believed it? That you could do greater things. 
And I get it, maybe some of you, you're trapped in this office and it feels like this lost, hopeless place. But what if you remembered that you are actually the body of Christ and he's called you to do greater things? Or many of you in your home, it's difficult to be a follower of Jesus at times. And there's a sense with you, but you don't know if you can carry out these actions. But what if I told you this? See, our whole lives were taught that we should have faith in Jesus, and we should. But what if Jesus has faith in us? It doesn't matter that we're not the best of the best. He didn't need it the first time. He doesn't need it this time. Maybe you've heard lots about those type of things. I take great comfort in the fact that Jesus called those who weren't good enough, perhaps those who had a past, perhaps those who hadn't always been faithful to the Torah and didn't have it memorized, perhaps those who had done things in their past that were ugly, maybe it's those that didn't grow up in church, maybe it's those that hadn't been around spiritual things long enough to know up from down, but to him it didn't matter. He was the rabbi, he was the teacher, and he called him. Follow me. And in doing so, I believe that you can do the things that I've done, and we can even do greater things. So what's your greater thing? What's our greater thing? And let's do it. Let's pray.